I don't think I have to tell you, but you have permission to use your um, bulletins in a most productive way. And the stronger you fan, the more the person next to you receives your kindness, which you're going to want to do as the sermon progresses. Both the country to which we belong, the communities in which we live, I think, are in need of kindness. And I'm not thinking of that popular association we make with the word kindness as random acts done either on impulse or calculated as something arbitrarily to benefit someone else. Instead, I have in mind the sort of kindness derived from Hebrew thought and practice as related to friendship and human society. The basic social units of family and tribe are maintained by love or a quality of life most lived in relationship to one another based on this Hebrew term chesed, and which is translated in a variety of ways throughout uh, Hebrew scriptures and then um, into the New Testament. The most common that you'll come across is covenant loyalty, steadfast love, unfailing kindness. And while primarily used as a word with religious significance, it also extends into one's sense of responsibility within the whole of society. It takes on a dimension of love expressed in a variety of ways, like respect for one another, loyalty of a friend for a friend, concern for a neighbor, courtesy offered to a stranger, and kindness shown to the poor. But when such loyalties of love break down, when the wicked show no kindness to the poor, when someone shuns and despises their friend, or when preference is given to those who hate, then our society is in great danger. Most of us, our earliest experience in life is typically one of being loved and nurtured in a very loving environment. But sooner, soon thereafter, we come to know the tension and struggle of encountering rivals. One of my favorite child, child books or children's books depicts this um, sandbox with three girls playing, having a good time, enjoying their friendship, and little Anthony who comes along and wants to be part of the play but the girls don't pay him any attention. So Anthony builds a monstrosity of something, trying to get their attention. He looks over, but the girls still don't pay him any attention. And he, he shows how strong he is. He does all kinds of things to try to win their approval, nothing. Finally, he climbs up on this monstrosity and falls down and begins to cry. And the girls pay him attention. Uh, and then he's in the sandbox with the girls, and the next line is, here comes Peter. (laughs) You see that everyone knows that you introduce a rival, and it gets it, the the whole scene changes, and that's how the book ends. It's just this wonderful, I don't understand how children are supposed to get it, but as a parent reading it, you have great delight. Here's how Eugene Peterson observes this. He says, enmity is the actual condition in which more often than not we find ourselves. 
were criticized, teased, avoided, attacked, shot at. This is all just at school. Abandoned, stoned, cursed, hunted down, snubbed, stabbed in the back, treated like a doormat, and damned with faint praise. Not all of those things happen to us, and not all of the time, but enough of them and often enough. At one time, David valued, um, David was valued by Israel's King Saul for not only for his musical solace and his military prowess, but he just enjoyed his company. But as David's popularity with people grew, Saul's supremacy and rule became threatened, and a jealous and murderous rage set in. More and more, more and more, Saul hated David and attempted repeatedly to kill him. And woven throughout these six attempts to take David's life is this friendship between David and Jonathan. In the midst of meanness and hate, David knew the unfailing kindness and love of Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 18, it says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. In Hebrew thinking, all of society is principally covenantal, structured not only on a divine relationship with God, but on multiple relational levels. This covenant is expressed with demands and responsibilities on the part of both participants. The covenant between Jonathan and David serves as a as a principal example or an excellent example. Their relationship is one of sacred trust and a loyalty of devotion to one another. Jonathan helps David escape his father, and David reciprocates by showing kindness to Jonathan's descendants upon his death. Human covenants have this characteristic. They're always reciprocal, and they're always Love in the form of consistent loyalty and loving kindness. The covenant of friendship takes what's most common in human experience and turns it into something holy. This friendship with David, though, complicated Jonathan's life. He risked losing his father's favor and willingly sacrificed his own royal future. But neither the risk nor the loss deterred him. He remained David's loyal friend. Jonathan lived out his friendship in circumstances that were difficult, but the circumstances did not cancel out the covenant. Rather, the covenant overcame the circumstances and in so doing, served God's purposes for David's life. It's important for us to realize and recognize this. Because most of us know from life experience how circumstances can threaten our relationships. Whether it's marriage, family, work, friendships, or just um, the experience we have of making friends socially. But if we understand these relationships in a covenantal way, which is directed and determined by concrete acts of love and loyalty then the covenant and not the circumstances will carry the day. Paul says something similar. In Colossians 3, his word 
for this virtue of kindness is Christotis, which corresponds with a lot of other words like goodness and generosity and courtesy. It describes someone whose life and relationships with others is lived out graciously and empathetically. And Paul regularly makes this connection with the kindness of God, the kindness that God has shown to us, then we in turn are supposed to show toward others. So I'd like you to imagine what it might be like if the fractious political debates and sound bites that dominate our um, television screens and our congressional chambers were to experience this kind of demonstration of kindness. As famed scientist and cosmologist Carl Sagan, in an appeal for society to move beyond this us-them mentality toward marrying our convictions with our compassion, once said, let us temper our criticism with kindness. Writer, critic, and blogger Maria Popova observed this, that the measure of kindness which is different from nicety and different from politeness, is most often revealed in challenging moments when we're called upon to rise above the impulse toward its opposite, ignited by fear, anger, and despair. Take, for example, the story behind poet, writer, and teacher Naomi Shihab Nye's famous work titled Kindness. She tells how, well, first she states this in the poem, before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. This link between kindness and sorrow is uh, profound, as you will see. She and her husband were on the first week of a three-month honeymoon in the country of Colombia, when the bus they were traveling on was pulled over and everyone was robbed and a man was killed in the altercation. Having lost all their money and documents, Naomi and her husband were stunned and shaken by this event. And in the local village where they were, they encountered a man who walked up to them and asked if they were okay. He could tell something was terribly wrong. According to Nye, he was extremely kind. And as her husband went to secure funds to continue on their trip, Nye said a voice came to her and spoke the words of this poem, and she simply transcribed them. Here in her own voice is her beloved poem, Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness, how you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. 
You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. I want to make some observations about kindness from this story of the relationship between David and Jonathan and what Naomi Shehab Nye reflects on in her poem. The first is that I think we more readily connect with another person's suffering and sorrow than we do with someone else's happiness. Sharing a sorrowful experience and the vulnerability of loss allows us to identify with another person at a very deep level. And that kind of authenticity becomes contagious. It opens us up to do the very same thing with others. The second observation is that suffering and sorrow has the capability or capacity to make us kinder, more loving people who know when and how to express empathy. Think about it. We have a song that we sing, everyone needs compassion, the kindness of a savior. And that kindness of Jesus as our savior is expressed through his own sacrifice and suffering so that he might win our hearts and understand our sense of loyalty and trust toward God. It all is based on the fact that someone's willing to, to act in that way. And the third observation I would make about kindness is though, although anyone can convey kindness, I think it's most likely to be experienced dynamically when someone expresses it within a covenant relationship, a relationship of proven loyalty and trust. When you've been with someone over time and you've struggled through difficulties and issues and you've learned to trust them even though you still don't disagree with them, still don't agree with them you can understand what it means to offer kindness in that setting and then the fourth and final observation is that as people of God who are so loved and cared for I think we're called upon to demonstrate this quality of character and life that is unmistakably kind and loving toward others. What it means to be Christian is to reflect the very character and, and life of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to others. To so uh, embody a sense of kindness that we don't do it as some deliberate act, but rather it becomes second nature to us. It becomes the way in which we treat people because that's the way in which we have been treated and so loved. So in this coming week, may you see 
lots of examples of kindness and realize that they're all done by you for the benefit of others and that others take notice of that and you hardly even notice at all. May it be so. Now we're